Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Today we have a special guest, Matt Eitzen, who is a actor, Dallas, Texas, um, and a Shakespeare and Roman enthusiast, um, nay expert, if you're asking me. So Roman history enthusiast. Roman, I the, Roman history enthusiast. I, I I don't I don't necessarily love everything about the Romans, but I think they're very interesting. Okay, fair enough. Um, so super apropos for the work we're doing today, which is going to be on William Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. So Matt, thanks for uh, joining. Oh, t- thank you, man, for having me on. This is yeah. uh, I, I love the I love the show, and I've uh, been itching to get on. Oh, too kind, too kind. Um, so Matt is actually going to ask our opening question. Yeah. So I, I I thought a good first question to ask about this play that defies so many of the conventions of, of traditional dramatic storytelling is who is it about and who is right and who is wrong? And I don't think uh, that there is one answer to either of those questions, but I think they are worth exploring. Um, And as I, as I mentioned briefly in our, we we were chatting a bit before the show started. One of the things that I find interesting about this play is the way that different people in different places and times take different things away from it. Um, It's, it's not a play that is very easy to pin down um, in a, in a way that is good in a, in a way that I think uh, adds to it, not detracts from it. So, when you say who is right and who is wrong, are we saying that in some kind of moral sense or are we saying that in some kind of um, says things that are true sense? I think, I think it is in both of those senses. And I think it is also in a what do we want and how do we get it sense. Um, Cause it's a play that it's about a lot of things. It is a, it's a political drama, obviously, but it also is a very personal drama. You know, um, all of the characters are close friends and comrades. This is a, a conspiracy that breaks out amongst a, a political faction that up until this point have been a unified block and who have history together and who, you know, in, in some instances were served together in the preceding civil wars. Are, are married to each other's Right, right. Yeah, yeah. in in many cases are are legally and familially intertwined. Um, uh, So, um, uh, when when you say, uh, is it a moral question? I think it is a moral question. I think it is a ends means, certainly, you know, is it worth murdering your... Uh, mentor and possibly biological father uh, in order to preserve liberty um, I, in terms of a who says things that are true question. Uh, I think that's kind of everybody says things that are true um, and everybody says things that are, are less true. Um, certainly things that turn out to be wrong. Um, but also... Is politic is terrorism? Because that's that's what it is. I mean, that's what the assassination of Julius Caesar is. Is an attempt to uh, enact political change through violence and fear. Um, 
does it work? Is it worth it? Um, because of course the great irony of Brutus and Cassius is that in attempting to preserve the Republic, they start the, the chain of dominoes that leads directly to the end of, uh, of the Republic and the beginning of uh, what we now call the empire. Although it, di it didn't look that imperial at the time, but what, what did go from a, limited democracy to a uh, an autocracy a, a rule by rule. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned limited democracy because i feel like implicit in this play is some commentary on democracy right and, you know the the opening scene kind of frames that right it frames mm -hmm. the relationship between these you know political factions and the people mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. And so I want to I want to just turn there because I get a kick out of this every time, and I always I always love to see whenever I see a production, I love to see how they play this right. Mm -hmm. So we've got uh, Flavius and Muralus, who are Muralus. Um, uh, uh, I played Muralus in uh, oh. my freshman year at OU. We did, oh. and I played Muralus in this. There you go. And these are both you know Roman tribunes. Mm -hmm. They come upon. Uh, some some commoners, right? A cobbler, um, a a carpenter, and they're they're chastising him because they're like, "You should be at work. Why aren't you at work?" And you know the people are saying, "No, right. we're, we're partying." It's a it's a holiday. Yeah, Caesar's having his triumph. We're going to the triumph. Right. So it's like the Raptors just won the sports ball competition. Right. So it's, we're gonna we're gonna Lupercalia. At noon, the youths are going to run naked through the streets, whipping whipping women with uh, with wolf skins. And uh, I'm going to buy some popcorn. It's going to be great. Yeah, what we're doing today, man. Lay off. Yeah, and so you know when you when you talk about this idea of you know democracy versus autocracy, um, you know that idea and and also ties into the, our question of who is right. Um, you know, because we have this. This is this is the setting. And you know, they're, they're, Shakespeare seems to be trying to set up something around that relationship between, you know, the commoners, quote unquote, the commoners, and the political class. And we see that while it's, um, you know, Brutus and Cassius, it's their actions that you know start the chain of events. But it's really the people that kind of escalate it. Right. right, right. I mean, they are it. it one of the things that makes it a, a political drama, and and this sounds, this is going to sound very elementary, but I think it is. I think it is crucial, and I, I think uh, this is sort of where you're going. In that, they're always playing to the crowd. It's all about getting the people on your side. The the you know the big turn in the in the play isn't a battle. The battle is at the end of the at the end of the play and, and most everything has been settled by them. The big turn is a funeral and a series of political speeches um, that, that turns the tables and, and gets the assassins cast out and on the run. Um, so it, it, you know, it is a, it is a play that is concerned with political opinion. Um, and, and it, it's so, it, it's interesting if we if we look at the context in which the play was written, because you have, and this is another thing I, I find interesting about both Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, 
Coriolanus a little less so because uh, Coriolanus is based on real events but takes a lot more liberties with the history than Caesar and uh, and, uh, and A and C do. Not that they don't take some liberties, but they're mostly like, um, as an example, the actual Battle of Philippi took two days and Cassius died on the first day and Brutus died on the second day and the play he just makes it one day and they both die around the same time. Um, but other than that, it, it's broadly speaking accurate to the events. Um, and so what is interesting about it is you have three contexts. You have the context of the actual historical events that he's basing all of this on. You have the context in which he wrote it. And then you have the context in which we are reading it. And the thing that uh, what I, I think a lot of people who read it without knowing any of that don't get or, or maybe lay onto it that Shakespeare wouldn't have um, is that we have very different ideas about democracy and monarchy and autocracy and all of these things than the people did um, in the time that Shakespeare was writing it and also very different from the way people did when these events were happening. Um, we, so I, as an example, I talked about, I, I said limited democracy earlier. Uh, one thing that I think a lot of people confuse is they hear the Roman Republic, which is what they always call this, and they think, ah, a republic. We're, America is a republic. We have a president, they have a consul, we have a Congress, they have a Senate, we have a Senate. You know, hey, um, it's the same thing, right? When really it, it wasn't, it, it, it is useful to draw some parallels between, between the Roman Republic and contemporary democracy, but we would not really recognize the Roman Republic as a democracy by any modern standard. Um, so obviously you had to be a man to vote. Like women did not have the vote. Um, slaves did not have the vote. And that was most of the population was slaves. Um, the Roman economy ran on slaves. Um, and you had to be a Roman citizen and not everybody who lived under the Republic was a citizen. You, you had to either be of Italian origin or have had done something, your people did something in the past that was worthy enough that the Roman Republic was like, okay, fine, you get to be citizens. Um, so it, it was a very small portion of the population that actually got to vote. And to make it even less uh, as to what we would call democracy today, they had legal class distinctions that were hereditary. Um, you were either a, uh, a noble, um, what were sometimes called the patricians, although that term shifted over time. Um, the, the knights, or the, in Latin, the uh, equites, which were sort of the very small middle class, or you were a plebeian, which was everybody else. And most of the political offices, although they were elected by all of the citizenry, were almost on, always only contested by the nobles or the middle class. So one thing we have to keep in mind about Julius Caesar is all of these characters are filthy, stinking rich and come from families that have been prominent families in Rome for a very, very long time. The, the family of Caesar, the Julii, claimed to be descended from the goddess um, Aphrodite. Uh, I forget what her Latin name is. Venus. Planet, duh. Uh, Brutus's family, as is referenced in the play, has been around so long that it was his ancestor, also named Marcus Junius Brutus, 
who kicked out the last Etruscan king of Rome and founded the Republic. So these are not uh, these are not sort of politicians in the same sense that we would think of them today. Um, so the anyway, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I, I think all of that adds to our understanding of it, and and we can get a lot out of thinking about those sorts of things. Well, it comes back to your question of of who is who's right and who's the right. main character, right? Right. So you know, the, I guess the question I would ask there is something like if you're in inured from being wrong um are you more likely to convince yourself that you're right right and you know brutus especially because brutus stands out yeah a lot as like literally every single thing he does is a terrible idea yeah everything he tells people to do like just little stuff you know, yeah. it's just a terrible idea. Yeah. And what's fascinating to me about that is, you know, we, we meet Brutus when this thing is already kind of going, right? Yes. Like, you know, Cassius has... Um, some people. Some together. people. Yeah. And, and oh, oh, by the way, everybody knows about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's <just> fascinating. <laughs> Like, or at least, or at least, you know, all of the the inner circle Caesarians know about it. Yeah, um, and and even uh, like the wives kind of know, yeah. you know, on some level. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Portia's like, "What's going on? What are you doing?" Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Calpurnia, Caesar's wife's like, "Don't go to the Senate today." Like, literally, everybody seems. Yeah. To know. random people are coming up in the streets saying, "You know, hey, Caesar, read this yeah. note." you're gonna get schwacked yeah um it's fascinating to me and i think that's part of the scene of these guys are so used to what they say working out for them that they they don't even entertain that you know what their actions could have negative consequences right 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 um and it and when we enter the story i i think it's a very interesting point that caesar jumps us into uh, or set Shakespeare jumps us into Caesar is a character in the play. Caesar did not write the play. That would be weird. Uh, Shakespeare starts us off. Like if you were getting a historian to tell you like the story of the, of the end of the Roman Republic, they would not start here. They would start a lot earlier. Cause there's a bunch of stuff that has just happened that we only get a little bit of reference to. Um, but short version the, the last, like, six leaders of Rome were all assassinated, except for one guy who managed to retire and die of old age. And then other than that one guy, the other five all got assassinated. Um, so it, it, part of it is probably that everybody's looking around going like, well, Caesar did it. He killed his way to the top, and now it's going to be his turn to get knocked off, and then the next guy's going to come up the ladder. Um, so certainly there... And, and then the soothsayer who has the, some sort of, you know, um, has watched the flights of eagles and divined that Caesar will be killed upon the Ides of March. Um, and, and so then, and with Brutus in particular, if, if we're focusing in on how Brutus screws every, just ruins everything he touches, um, it's, it is Brutus who, of course, sets them down the, the great mistake um, 
where to preserve the Republic, they destroy the Republic uh, and end up all dead on a battlefield in Northeast Greece, uh, you know, that nobody's ever heard of. Um, And I, and so it's interesting if you look at how Brutus and Cassius as historical figures are perceived by other um, people that we have records of. The one that jumps to mind for me is uh, Dante's Inferno, where the, the four people in the lowest circle of hell are Satan, Judas, and Brutus and Cassius, um, because they are the great traitors. Uh, and even today, I still think a lot of people look at Brutus and Cassius and sort of say, oh, how could they? Um, how dare they uh, do that horrible, horrible thing? But I look at Brutus and Cassius, and even though I know that it ends badly, I, I can't help but agree with their core principle, which is that Caesar is a dictator in making, and he is dangerous, and he needs to be removed. And he probably did need to be removed. Um, but a, best intentions don't mean a, a damn thing, and you know when you're falling upon your sword. Um, well, do you know, is, is, is there, is it in Plutarch that the Senate was going to give him a crown the day he went to the Senate or did, did Shakespeare just add that? I don't know if that's in Plutarch. <clears throat> I'm not sure if it is either. Cause that's that, that whether or not that's true or if that's just a ruse to get him to go. I mean, it seems right. plausible considering, you know, Antony was, offered him a crown three times, you know, and he shyly demurred, but the crowd was cheering, you know, so it's possible. And then that, that brings to light, you know, how it's another kind of uh, fairly, you know, straightforward pointing at Caesar and Brutus are really alike. Yes. Because I think that what their characters most share is some, I mean, you can call it ambition, right? Yeah. Which, is, which is what Brutus says. Yeah. But it is, I, I have not gotten my just desserts. I, I deserve more, you know? And whether it's, you know, Caesar and being a dictator and, and, and getting the crown, or whether it's Brutus who, um, you know, wants to be the guy that like, you know, leads this that leads the rebellion mm-hmm. or or to be a martyr you know yeah. like those, those are his two things he's like i have not gotten my just desserts so i have to take action there's mm-hmm. nobody going yeah take it or leave it you know like it, it could go either way right like right. They, they seem to justify their action through um you know the world is unfair and i haven't gotten mine right all right um yeah uh Certain, and I, I think Caesar owns it more uh, than Brutus. Certainly, Brutus tries to clo- tries a lot harder to cloak it in. No, I'm just doing the noble thing. Um, that also happens to be the thing that will make me acclaimed and probably, you know, the next guy on the on the big seat. Um, and I think. Um, I think that ambition is, is, you know, obviously a major theme throughout the play. Almost all of the main characters, certainly all the men, 
uh, are very ambitious. Um, except maybe Casca. Uh, and I think that the question of when is rhetoric and high-minded idealism used to cloak ambition? Um, and how do we know when someone is, you know, uh, Brutus says he was ambitious, ambitious. Uh, and when does someone just have an earnest desire to, to serve their, you know, nation? Um, and, and where is the line? And when does action justify violence, if ever? Um, I, so I think this is, would be a good time to talk about uh, the funeral scene, because I, I think that's worth focusing in on as a... As a huge Marlon Brando fan? I mean, for that and many other reasons. <laughs> I will I will put in a plug for the the Brando um, as Mark Anthony film from like 1962. I want to say no, it was, it was later than that, mid 60s. Um, but it was done in black and white, so it seems like it was earlier. Right. Um, I'll also put in a plug for our listeners and for you, Matt, if you haven't seen this yet. But there was an Italian movie um, called Caesar Must Die which is the best Julius Caesar, um, I, I will say, interpretation. Yeah. As they do it in a way that I don't, I don't even want to spoil it for you yeah. or the listeners. Have you seen that one? Have you seen Caesar? No, Western? no. I, I don't know. want to spoil it for you or our listeners, though. Right. You know, as soon as you hit, you know, hit pause on the pod right now, mm-hmm. listeners, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. go find Caesar Must Die. If I, if I can find it... Um, it was on Netflix forever ago. It's not on, it wasn't on there the last time I looked, but mm-hmm. if I can find it streaming, it will be in the show notes. Um, oh yeah. Highly recommend it. Cause it is incredible. Great. Great. Uh, all right. So the, <clears throat> it's a three, two, three, two. Act three, scene two. All right. So what do you want? Where do you want to start on this? So there's uh, so there's the two big speeches, um, and I think I, I think these are valuable as a sort of compare and contrast. Uh, so if we start with with uh, Brutus's speech, so well so the, so uh, the big takeaway that I always when I whenever I read this scene I always read Brutus's monologue I'm like. That was fine, yeah. you know. It was if I heard that at a if I heard a politician goes, we should be like, okay, sure, yeah, okay, fine. Let's move next thing, please. I, I want to uh, point out before we jump to Mark Anthony's that yes. you know Cassius has a speech too. Yes, he does. You know, it's not it's not in here, but Brutus yeah. sends Cassius down another street because the crowd is too big. Yeah. So he's like, hey, you go talk to some people and I'll talk to some people. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, I haven't read this in a while. And all the movies and plays just cut this out. They don't, yeah. they don't do it. And so mm-hmm. I read that. And I was just like, I wonder, I wonder what Shakespeare was doing getting Cassius, you know, out of the scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
so my reading of that was always that he wanted because when he's not being advised by Cassius is when Brutus screws up. That's when he is at his most vulnerable. It seems like he screws up even when he is being advised by Cassius. Well, <laughs> I mean, that is also getting, true. Getting him out um, is just a fascinating little thing, and it makes you just go, I wonder what Cassius' speech was like, you know? Yeah. Uh, I wonder what the plebeians over there were, you know, we're doing. Were doing. We're anyway, but you were about to talk about... Um, well, so I, I was going to say on, on Brutus's speech, um, and what and what I think is interesting is he is when you break down Brutus's monologue, just sort of on a on a connotative basis, he's making good arguments. He's he is uh, not wrong. I agree with basically everything that he's saying, um, but it's just not. It just doesn't sound as good coming out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, as Antony's does, and this is this is something that I think is is one of the ways that Shakespeare knew how to play to the strength of his medium, because it would be difficult to communicate that in like a novel format, for example, because um, you just have the way it is written down. You just have the words on the page, but in a play, you have the words as they are, and then you have the way the actor delivers them. Um, and he, and he's just written a speech that as much is cerebral and it is not very inspiring. Um, and then you get to Anthony's speech, which is quite rightfully one of the most famous pieces of, you know, of text in the canon. Um, uh, just a quick sidebar. Another thing I like about this play is how many idioms we have from it that we still use. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was Greek to me. The, the dogs of war. Um, uh, oh, there's another one. Um, uh, there's, there's a few others. Um, but so we get, we get one um, in here. And uh, one of the things that I, I love about Shakespeare generally that, that comes up in this mm-hmm. uh, scene is how much he gives future directors a lot to work with. Mm-hmm that it's not kind of set in stone. And so, you know, Anthony's speech, you know, where where he has to turn away from the crowd at one point, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And he says, um, let me, I'll try to find it here. It's something like, uh, oh yeah. Bear with me, my heart is in the coffin there with Caesar and I must mm-hmm. pause till it come back to me. Right. Mm-hmm. And then it puts some plebeian, there's some plebeian talks in there. And yep. like, I've seen this played like a million different ways, like Brando's, which is like my favorite, probably. Mm-hmm. He kind of turns, kind of like starts fake crying, turns, then the camera goes to him as he's turning away from the crowd. And he's just very knowingly, like, kind of listening. Like, he's not crying. He's right. gauged the temperature of the audience. Right. Uh, so it's this sly Anthony who then is kind of belying that he's just putting on a show to manipulate the crowd, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you can totally play it straight. You can totally right. play it as this, you know, this is my best friend and I'm weeping right now and, and that's possible. Absolutely. I also, I love the will. Like yes. The fact that he's got the will. Yeah. Right? And this this is as best as I've, you know, ever read and, and been able to find, I've read a lot of Roman books on this period. The, this is a, a real thing. This is a thing that happened. Um, anyway, 
sorry. So I buy that. And this is another way that he's, that Shakespeare is giving a director plenty to work with Yeah, is by dropping these breadcrumbs of everybody kind of knows this is happening. Mm-hmm. And then que coincidencia, Mark Anthony right. just happens to have Caesar's will on him, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, did Anthony know this is going to happen? You know, did he just like, okay, he's getting schwacked today. That's why I'm right. late for the morning meeting. Cause I had to, right. I had to go, you know, find the will. the will and like, you just have so much to play with and you don't have to like point straight at it. You know, nope. you can kind of waft in a general right. direction mm-hmm. and make your audience really think about these characters. And that's just a tremendous amount of, of depth. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, um, and one one thing that I like about about this play, particularly when read in conjunction with Antony and Cleopatra, uh, is how it, it, it everybody's relationship to each other is constantly shifting and changing, and you're never certain of anyone's motives. Um, and 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 so you know, surprising stuff uh, can can happen. Um, I think. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of the DNA of this play. I think exists in a lot of media that we like a lot right now, and I think most of it has to do with that, with that exact uh, thing you're describing. I'm put in mind of like House of Cards would be an obvious one, but also like Game of Thrones. I think owes a, owes a lot of debt to to this play and to Anthony and Cleopatra, um, and so we see Antony transform from uh, like maybe a bad guy to a, the good guy and then back to a bad guy. Um, and then the whole next play, he's the main character. Uh, yeah. So, so you would say the WWE also owes a lot to Julius Caesar. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Heel turns, face is, turns. Is Hulk Hogan a good guy? Is he a bad guy? It's is hard he a keep. bad guy? Yeah. He's both. Yeah. And that, that I think is the lesson. <laughs> Nobody's just one thing. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I derailed you. No, no, no. Uh, I don't think you did. I think we brought it into a very nice landing. Uh, yeah. So he, he pulls out the, he pulls out the will and he does the whole thing where he fell down in front of Pompey's statue. Um, which that probably did not happen. That probably is a poetic invention of Caesar's, as is uh, et tu brute. Uh, uh, oh, and he gives any, I, I just want to pull out this piece of text because I, I, it's in Anthony, the latter part of Antony's oration, and I just don't think it ever gives the, gives it, gets the credit that it deserves. And I, particularly because most people don't know what it's a reference to. Um, if you go close to the end, um, it's an Antony section that begins with good friends, sweet friends. Um, and he is talking about how he is uh, not as good of an order as Brutus is. Um, and he's a plain, blunt soldier, you know, who he has no way with words. Um, and then he, uh, and he says, um, for I have neither wit nor words nor worth, action nor utterance nor the power of speech to stir men's blood. I only speak right on. I tell you that which you yourselves do know. Show you sweet Caesar's wounds, poor, 
poor dumb mouths and bid them speak for me. But were I Brutus, and Brutus Antony, there were an Antony, would ruffle up your spirits and put a tongue in every wound of Caesar that should move the stones of Rome to rise and mutiny. Um, I, I love that section because it's a, a reference to Virgil, the Roman poet, who um, has a very famous segment where he is discussing uh, uh, an oration and said that if the jury had been made of stones, then even the stones should weep and rise up and cry not guilty. Um, or I'm, That's not verbatim, but he wrote it in Latin, so it can't be verbatim. Uh, and I just think that's cool that he had, a Caesar, or that Shakespeare had apparently read Virgil and slipped in uh, a classical Latin reference. I'm, I'm always down for a classical Latin reference. I, I, I wonder, you know, <clears throat> before the speech, you know, after they have killed Caesar, um, Brutus makes the decision to bathe in the blood, basically. Mm-hmm. To, to bloody their hands uh, before they walk out to the people. Right. And every time I read that, I just go, what is going in your head where you're like, all right, we just killed the king, more or less. Right. Uh, we want to get the people on our side about this. They're gonna, they're totally gonna be on our side. They're right. total, they're gonna be, they're gonna be like Fonzie. And what's Fonzie like? Fonzie's cool. They're going to be cool with this. And just, you know, let's just put his blood all over us before we go out and talk to these cool Fonzie like guys. Um, Because that'll be, that's a really good idea. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What is going through your head when it's like, okay, we got to really calm the people down. They're probably going to be a little riled up. I mean, they'll get it. He'll get it. So let's just all cover ourselves in his blood. Um, yeah, you know, I think that'll go down that out. Uh-huh. And and it's something I'm just like I'm trying to go like, what is he thinking in this moment, or is this just peak Brutus, where it's like I could not come up with a worse idea. So I I, I can actually tell you what he's thinking because okay. this is a thing that uh, did have well something like this happened. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier that when we pick up the story at the beginning of Julius Caesar, there's already been a lot of political turmoil and a lot of assassinations. Um, it had become standard practice when, when the noble class killed somebody who they felt was threatening their power, um, that they would do it as a group and that no individual would claim responsibility. That they would always say, we all did it. We all did it together. You can either take all of us or you can let it go and we'll all move on with our lives. Um, now, I, I don't know that they literally like bathed all their hands in, in Caesar's blood so that they all had his blood on their hands, but they did say, no one of us killed him. We all killed him. We all, for the people, for the Republic. Um, uh, so it's a, it's a metaphor for that political practice that had developed of, of sort of collective uh, responsibility for assassinations. Um, so, yeah. I always thought it was something like, you know, the props designer for Shakespeare right. was just like, oh. dude, you gotta let me, you gotta let me use this fake blood. You gotta, 
I have so much. You've got well, it. I mean, you've got uh, music. again, Shakespeare knows his medium. He knows what's going to look cool on stage. Uh, he could, you know, he could have, he could have made that point in many different ways. He could have had somebody been like, and we shall all claim, but instead he's like, no, they're going to bathe their hands and we're going to get all the, we're going to get the maximum use out of the fake blood. That, this stuff is not cheap. Uh, it's not even fake. It's pig's blood. We get it from a... It was super cheap. It was like three-day-old pig's blood. You know, got a great uh, deal on it. Uh, yeah, no joke. They, uh, period, one period effect, uh, a, uh, a sheep intestine balloon full of uh, pig or sheep's blood used like a modern-day squib. Um yeah, so you know, he he's he's playing for effect. Uh he's smart. He knows what he's writing about. Um so Anthony turns the crowd and the crowd riots and chase the conspirators out of the city. Um and then we go pretty quickly to the war front. Uh and we introduce the from a historical perspective most important character in this whole thing, but who is not going to become that prominent a character until Anthony Cleopatra, uh, Octavian, the future Gaius Julius Caesar, uh, Augustus Divifilius uh, Imperator, uh, first emperor of Rome, popularly known as uh, the Emperor Augustus. Uh, and then we get to the Battle of Philippi, which in the grand tradition of Shakespearean battles, mostly takes place off, off stage. Uh, exit, sounds special of fighting. Was it, it was pre-CGI, so the special yeah. effects were expensive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they go off and they fight and then they come back and they talk and then they go back and they fight and then so on and so forth. Um, and we, uh, on, the, on the scale of Shakespearean battle scenes, I actually think this one is, is one of his better ones. Um, I, we, we, uh, we certainly get a lot of very beautiful speechifying uh, during the Battle of Philippi. Um, and then uh, all sorts of mis- you know, misunderstandings. Um, he, he, he does a good job, I think, of communicating. I, I say this, knowing your background, as someone who has <laughs> never at all been near a war zone. But... I, I like that combat and classics for a reason. Right, right, right. Um, and I, I can't speak to that from, from an individual perspective. But one thing that he, or, or at least a thing that comes up in all of the historical records that he doesn't forget, and I think a lot of contemporary screenwriters do, is that battlefields are very confusing and people get mixed up about whose side who's on, particularly given that it's a civil war and it's just Roman soldiers fighting other Roman soldiers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we get stuff like Cassius becoming confused and thinking Brutus has been captured and leading to his suicide. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then of uh, and then we get Brutus's very touching uh, assisted suicide, mm-hmm. which is super interesting to me, right? Both yeah. both both his suicide and Cassius's suicide. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, they're on the, they're on the plain of Philippi. Mm-hmm. They're kind of separated from, you know, most everybody else. They, they, they both have like a small kind of contingent that's escaping right. with them. Mm-hmm. And 
at least in, in Brutus's case, I know off the top of my head in Brutus's case, I'm not sure in Cassius's case, but in Brutus's case, it was, it was one of his slaves that he gets to do this. Mm-hmm. And I think there would be some weird, really good synergy if that was true of Cassius as well. So that's 5-3. Um, yeah. Is it a slave? Uh, oh, yeah. No, so... Um, slave. Cash, yeah, it's Cassius's slave. Uh, 5-3-36, come hither, Sirrah, in Parthia did I take thee prisoner. Mm-hmm. And then I swore thee, saving of thy life, that whatsoever I did bid thee do, thou shouldst attempt it. Come now, keep thine oath. So Cassius gets a... And he frees him, now be a free man, and with this good sword that ran through Caesar's bow, search this bosom. So Cassius is killed by one of his slaves. Mm-hmm. At his command. Now, is Brutus killed by one of his slaves as well? Or is it just yes. one of his soldiers? No, no, it's one of his... I believe it's his slave. Um, uh, Matt, uh, Matt Holmes played uh, um, Strato, who kills Brutus in that production that I played Merylis in, actually. Oh, right on. Um, so he got to kill Brutus. Yeah, I pry thee, Strato, stay thou by thy lord, thou art a fellow of good respect, thy life hath had some snatch of honor in it. Hold hold then my sword and turn away thy face while I do run upon it, wilt thou, Strato? So it, it's super interesting, I mean, it's just super interesting that like, these guys aren't killing themselves. Mm-hmm. You know? maybe, the, maybe the Roman swords are a lot longer than I think they are. But, <laughs> you know, they gotta get somebody, they have to get their servants you know, even to kill right. for them. Right. And so I feel like that there's something that Shakespeare is coming back to that he touched on in the opening scene with the cobbler and the carpenter that mm-hmm. he touched on in the mob scene, you know, when they burn Caesar's body and then burn the houses of the conspirators. And now, you know, the slaves are getting commanded to kill their masters. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure what it is. I'm not sure what Shakespeare's kind of over commentary, uber commentary, if there is such a thing, right? Um, is with these three things, but they're definitely very interesting in, in how the different classes are interacting. So it's, yeah, it's difficult because we know because our understanding of Shakespeare's life is so patchy. Um, it's sometimes difficult to even place when exactly he wrote some of the plays. We're pretty sure he wrote this one in 1599, which is uh, significant because it's, it's very late in Elizabeth's reign. Elizabeth has only got a, a couple more years on the throne when he writes this. Um, and Elizabeth, although we now sh- in the contemporary imagining, she's remembered as sort of one of the greatest English monarchs, um, at the time, you know, had, was quite unpopular with many segments of the population, and there were a number of attempts to assassinate her. Um, so certainly that sort of thing, the, the specter of a sudden assassination, and she had no children, so there was no obvious heir. And so everybody was like, what's going to happen when the queen dies? Who knows? Could be total anarchy. Um, so certainly there, there, there would have been some of that motivating some of this and maybe his interest in in this topic and the way he is approaching it 
Um, and it was also a period of increased popular involvement in politics, uh, in part motivated by religious feeling. You know, this was the, the, the period of the Catholic Protestant Wars, you know, had only really just recently wound down in England uh, and was still raging on the continent. And people felt very strongly about it and they had very strong political opinions because of that. Um, so certainly this would have been a time period in which, and particularly in England, which although it, it was definitely still a monarchy, had more, um, the, the, the English monarchs had less power than most European monarchs and had to listen to the nobility, not really the common people, but someone, not just the king can do whatever he wants. Um, so, yeah, yeah, so maybe some of that, maybe not, I don't know. I, I can't read his mind. He's dead. <laughs> uh, he's been dead for a long time. Uh, well, I think that the main reason that, you know, Elizabeth has become so popular is, like, you know, obviously Judy Dench has a lot to do with it. Right. Her, so. Once, once Dame Judy plays you, you're like, mm -hmm. oh, she's okay. She's great. You know, I love her. All right. Or Nicole uh, Dorostocki. Hi, Nicole, if you're, if you're listening to this. <laughs> Either one. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it's the, you, have, you have this. It, one, one more question I kind of want to ask is, you know, do you think that Brutus was like a sound strategic thinker? And then once he got put in charge, he just made terrible decisions or like, is, was this just his MO like all the time, but Cassius goes, well, you know, his ancestors founded Rome. So that's a great figure. Yeah. And I'll just kind of run the show. Um, I mean, I think more of the latter, but I got to ask myself like, my God, why did, why did Cassius even, if this guy is, half as dumb as he is in the play if he's been half as dumb yeah. before the play as he is in the play then Cassius has made a terrible decision involving yeah you know and it might be why like he's the last domino because once they get brutus then they act right but it's not until they have brutus that they actually do it so i guess this is part of their strategy but still i'm scratching my head right um so i think and i may be letting some of what I know about the actual history inform my opinion of what is a fictional character, you know, ultimately. But I think Brutus is just always is in, in over his head from the very beginning, thinks he's much more capable than he actually is. Um, and he was, uh, he was um, considered by his contemporaries to be a little bit of a, a lackluster individual. He didn't serve in the military which was very unusual for Roman nobles. Um, and he, you know, was, was called or discussed by some people as, as being a bit of a rich kid who, you know, was fine, but certainly was not a great leader or had any sort of profound ability. Um, but he did have a very prestigious name. He was a member of the foremost noble house in Rome. Um, he was, you know, uh, at least to the public eye, young and capable. Uh, and so I, I think as to why Cassius recruits him, I think it's a, a clout thing. I think he knows people are more likely to accept it if they know that the Junii and, and Brutus in particular are on board and involved. Um, and I think, 
I think, as is, as is true of many uh, would-be revolutionaries throughout history, he loses control to Brutus. Um, he, he doesn't reckon for how much Brutus's clout will mean within the conspiracy mm-hmm. and amongst the conspirators. And so by bringing Brutus in, he ends up losing control of it, which brings them both to ruin because Brutus is not the man that he thinks he is or that Cassius thought he was. Um, and they get, in, they get in over their heads and it all falls apart. Um, but that's just my reading, you know. Uh, it, there are certainly other valid ones. I mean, I'm also wondering, like, of of the different classes that Shakespeare kind of critiques. I mean, I don't think anybody gets off no easy. I mean, mm-hmm. the the most pitiable uh, is probably like the the wives. You know? Yeah. Like the most tragic figures are potentially yeah. the wives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. everybody else kind of had it coming. <laughs> Right. Um, But, you know, uh, the wives kind of just get a very short end of the stick in this. Um, Or the Bernie part of the charcoal. That one hasn't caught on. But, um, you know, the the kind of liberal scholar gentleman that Brutus is Mm -hmm. might might be uh, the the class of the class of person that gets the the most implicit critique. You yeah. Know? I mean, we meet this guy. I mean, he's, he's reading a book the night before the battle of Philippi, you know, he's like right. up all night and reading. Mm-hmm. And I forget what the, I think that there's, I, I remember reading something about like what he's reading at some point in my kind of Shakespeare travels, but I don't mm-hmm. remember what it is. Um, there's, there's some kind of legend about what he's reading the night before Philippi. Oh yeah. But you know, this guy is, you know, he's, he's a noble gentleman full of noble uh, ideals. And, you know, it's just like, I will just do, he's one of these guys like, Oh, I shall just do the right thing. And if I follow my moral compass, then how can I go wrong? And it's like, well, let, let's write a play about that. Right. (laughs) How you can go wrong Right. about how, you know, noble intentions are cool. Right, um, but not terribly useful. But not terribly useful all the time. No. Um, and that sometimes you, uh, man's reach exceeds his grasp and you yeah. meddle with forces you should not be meddling with. Yeah, and I mean, noble intentions are great, but a degree of skepticism as to how well they're going to pay off, you know, I think is, is critically important. And I think that maybe that, that skepticism, like I'm trying to think of, you know, does... Well, real quick, I mean, we're kind of coming to the end of time, but I want to look at when when Cassius approaches Brutus. And I just want oh, to yes. if Brutus has any type of like, eh, I don't know. He eh. does. Oh, yes. He protests a lot uh, in this. Uh, but why does he protest? It's I don't know if it's because he's not sure about the outcome or if it's it's because uh, he has conflicting noble noble like um, conflicting noble emotions. Let us take a look. Is this uh, is two one? This is one two. Uh, one two. Yeah, this is the second thing we see. We do uh, Merilus and Flavius and the mob, um, and then we go straight into. Caesar arriving at the forum, and then everybody leaves except Brutus and Cassius, and we get uh, 
one of the most famous scenes in the canon. So uh, the first thing, the first time we hear the shouting, mm -hmm. I think is a pretty good little microcosm. Brutus says, what means this shouting? I do fear the people choose Caesar for their king. Cassius says, I do fear it. Then must I think you would not have it so? And Brutus says, I would not, Cassius, yet I love him well. Um, which I think pretty, pretty much encapsulates it, you know, in the most succinct way possible for him, is that he feels a strong personal loyalty to Caesar, um, but, but fears that he's going to become a tyrant and does not want him to be a, become a tyrant. Or for anyone to become a tyrant, for that matter. But how does Cassius sway him? You know, it's, you know, that, that line at right below that at 92, I know that virtue be in you, Brutus. Mm -hmm. And so appealing to his virtue mm -hmm. is potentially kind of, you know, what, what sways him. Yeah, he, he tries several different tactics to get him to do it. He, he points out a couple different ways in which Caesar is weak and mortal. He mentions that he's got epilepsy. Um, he mentions this time that he tries to swim across the Tiber River with Caesar and Caesar doesn't make it and Cassius has to carry him across. Um, but then he also appeals to Brutus's nobility and he, you know, talks about how every, you're so, you know, you're so noble and your family is so noble and we, everybody knows that you're purely dedicated to the welfare of the Republic and you always do the right thing. And, um, and then he plays up um, sort of how dangerous Caesar is. And then he gives, and then he, and then he does a very cool thing. And I don't, uh, I'm reading this on an app and I, I don't know the, the line number, but it's the one that begins Cassius's monologue. It begins, why man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a Colossus. Mm -hmm. Um, so he gives, he gives that great opening meta metaphor where he compares Brutus to, uh, a Colossus. Um, Caesar uh, to a Colossus. Yes. Sorry. He compares Caesar to a Colossus. Why man, he doth bestride the narrow world like a Colossus. And we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underlings. And then he starts to compare Brutus to Caesar. Um, and he starts by comparing their name. And, and he does a, a, a lot of sort of very fun rhetorical flourishes. And, and then he says... Uh, what what makes Caesar so so great? And he says, um, uh, Rome, thou hast lost the breed of noble bloods. When went there by an age since the graced flood that it was famed with more than one man? When could they say till now that talked of Rome that her wide walks encompassed but one man? Now it is Rome indeed, and room enough when there is in it but only one man. Oh, you and I have heard our fathers say that there was a Brutus once that would have brooked the eternal devil to keep his state in Rome as easily as a king. Um, just really hammer, you know, brings it all the way down to like, Caesar is a king and what do the Bruti, you know, what do you do? What does your family do? You kill kings. That's what you do. <laughs> Since the dawn of the Republic. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I'm 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 more looking at Brutus's stuff, you know. Yeah. 
because you know brutus early on uh you know says he's at war with himself he doesn't really give an answer to that right you know he says vexed i am of late with passions of some difference conceptions only proper to myself which gives some soil perhaps to my behaviors but let not therefore my good friends be grieved uh and then you know he says you know the next part is into what dangers would you lead me Cassius? for that you would have me seek into myself for that which is not in me right but then you just turn three pages and Brutus says, you know, after Cassius makes his case, <clears throat> and, oh, where is it? I just lost. Oh, there, here we go. Uh, this is around, yeah, 163. Uh, Brutus says to Cassius, that you do love me, I am nothing jealous. What you would work me to, I have some aim. Mm -hmm. So, like, that, that's what I mean about kind of Brutus's... Right, he doesn't need that much convincing. Attempts to no, I love him. Right, I love him. He's the best. He's so great. He's so great, but He's so. But yeah, I'm at war well, with myself, and I have. He doesn't say like this new aim. He's mm -hmm. like, I have some aim. Yeah, you know. So, <clears throat> I guess that's just all saying like, you know, it comes back to that idea of you know. Are they right? Is he right? And you can right. judge that by how well it works out. And well, I, I, I don't know that you, I mean, I think in this instance, it did not work out. And I think you should um, be wary of that, of the consequences of, of political violence. But I don't think that that makes everything that, that Brutus and Cassius say about Caesar or about what needs to be done about Caesar necessarily wrong. Um, I think, you know, I think it's, just uh, much more complicated than that uh, to really say if it's right or if it's always right or always wrong. Politics is complicated. It is indeed. That's why I don't watch the news. <laughs> Smart man. Yeah. Anyway, Maddie, we're, we're, we're at about time here, but I really want to say thanks a ton. This has been great. Yeah, I appreciate it. What's your next show? What are you working on next? Um, so I'm uh, uh, the, I suppose we've announced, so it's, it's, yeah, fine if I say this. I am helping out a little bit with uh, a couple of uh, guinea pig shows, cool. um, which is going to be the next project. We're doing a mini pig on July 27th, which is going to be a little fundraiser for our next full production. I will be in that one cool. uh, doing scripts that I have never seen before. I, uh, I will not see them until the night. So uh, come watch me flail. Uh, I'm told I'm funny when I'm flailing. Uh, and then I am helping uh, in a production capacity with our next full guinea pig um, a, a little bit here and there. So that's what's next on the plate for me. Great. Well, we'll, uh, we'll put some links to guinea pigs so our local Dallas yeah. listeners can check you out. Thank you a ton for your, your expertise, your knowledge, for joining us on the pod. Thanks for having me, man. This has been a jam. Wonderful. All right. Mm -hmm. Thanks, buddy. Mm -hmm.